the time, uh, they were too busy being amazed by this, this haul of fish that they were taking in. Such a large catch of fish. They were amazed because after an entire night's work as commercial fishermen throwing out nets, they hadn't pulled in even one fish. They had given up. They were cleaning their nets. But upon uh, the recommendation of Jesus, who wasn't a fisherman by trade, he told them, cast your nets one final time. They pulled up their nets out of the water. They came up bursting with fish. I don't know about you. I sincerely doubt that these men, these commercial fishermen at that time returned to shore, you know, looking at the direction of the sun, the position of the sun, the temperature of the water, uh, what direction the wind was coming from to rationalize why they had this big catch. As seasoned fishermen, these would have been types of indicators that they would have used typically as they'd go out, the time of day, the temperature of the water, how deep to go. Mark chapter 1 informs us that James and John had been mending their nets from their father Zebedee's boat alongside the hired servants that they had. Uh, So they were likely at least second generation fishermen. They knew the trade. They were professionals in the commercial fishing business. We also know from Luke chapter 5 and verse 5 that when Simon Peter obeyed Jesus to let down the nets from his own boat even, uh, it says that they, in the plural, they enclosed a great quantity of fish. So there must have been multiple hirelings in the boat with Peter as well. And then we're told in verse 7 that Peter's boat began to signal. They gave the signal to their partners in the other boat. That would mean James and John and, and, and the father Zebedee. And they all came out and helped the nets Uh, pulling the nets because they they became so full of fish, both boats began to sink. So these men were left to ask themselves, you know, was this really just a result of, of good fishing weather? Obviously not. Obviously not. There is no practical, uh, uh, explanation as to how a group of professional fishermen couldn't come in with one, fish they come up short after a whole night and then with one final cast of the nets at the word of Christ the nets come in full heaping full filled two entire boats to the point that they're sinking that's that's completely impractical you would never expect that they had never seen that They'd never had their boat so full from one cast of their nets. There existed no explanation other that Christ was in complete control of this situation, even in control of the fish. That's the only conclusion a rational reader of Luke's gospel could conclude as they read this. And I find myself asking, you know, looking at this, kind of imagining the scene in my mind, how this might have gone down. And uh, I, I think to myself, what was Jesus doing this entire time? What was he doing uh, during this commotion? I, the men, they're all in a panic. The nets are tearing, we're told. The boats are sinking. You know, was Jesus just kind of standing back by the mast? 
with a little bit of a grin on his face while the men are kind of panicking to figure out what they're going to do. I think something like that is probable. Jesus wasn't in a panic. If you remember in Matthew chapter 8, he was able to remain fast asleep as the storm came with the men and the disciples are trying to save the ship while Jesus was in asleep. He wasn't prone to panic. He wasn't that type. I don't think that he lent a helping hand with the nets either. He wasn't by trade a fisherman. He wasn't there to fish. Besides, if he, if he might have jumped in, you know, to help haul in those nets, if he might have been seen uh, doing that, it, it could have been interpreted by the, the, by the disciples that he too was concerned about the situation, that, that somehow it gotten out of control. Situation was never out of control. It was never out of control. I don't think Jesus jumping in to grab a corner of that net would have helped him help them understand who he is. Might have given them a, the impression that Jesus was just as worried as they were. Uh, but the truth is that though they thought it was, and, and though it appeared that the ships were sinking, the ships were never sinking. The ships weren't going to sink. Jesus wasn't going to allow that. Jesus had merely placed these men into a challenging situation. He'd placed them into a situation where things got a little bit serious for a time, right? They were concerned, and fear came on. Suddenly, their situation was unpredicted. They didn't see it coming. They didn't see the nets coming up so full. They'd never seen nets that full before to where two, two of the boats would be sinking. But just because things have gone out of control, because things in their lives seemed like a panic, it didn't indicate that Jesus had lost control. It was just the first of a number of very sudden and desperate situations that would come into the lives of these disciples as Jesus was conditioning them to trust in him. They knew the nets shouldn't have come up full. They had years of practical experience under their belts to know better. Realized this type of catch, it didn't happen. It was completely off the charts. Completely off the charts. It was impractical. Could have never planned it. No way to engineer it or to design it. Completely unpredictable to see those nets as it was. Nonetheless, that is exactly what occurred. Exactly what occurred. Uh, This was a game changer for them, folks. A complete game changer. Because up until this point, they'd they'd listened to Jesus preach. They had heard him from time to time as they would accompany him to different locations. And and they'd witnessed unexplainable, miraculous healings. They had seen that as well. And and they probably even heard uh, those demons who professed Jesus as the Christ at, at the synagogue in Capernaum, remember? But now Jesus was on their turf, a turf that they knew, a turf that they were experts in, something they should have had control over. They know this catch should have never happened. And they almost lose two family businesses in a matter of minutes. I, I wouldn't even doubt, as all the chaos was erupting and they're trying to get these heavy nets in that are tearing and they're trying not to lose their nets because of the expense with that 
They might have heard tearing. Some of them in a panic as they're, as they're reeling in. All of these fish, they might have actually been trying to toss some of those fish back out because the, the, the boats kept sinking and getting heavier and you can see them pushing them out. And, and I can just see Jesus. You know, all the splashing, all the nets and all the fish flopping around. You just see him, you know, just making them, some of them kind of flop back in the boat again. They're like, we're out of control. And as they dragged those nets and they brought the boats into shore with the biggest catch they had ever experienced, something begins to dawn on Peter. It troubles him very, very deeply. He's very troubled. In verse 9 of Luke chapter 5, it says that amazement had seized all of them because the size of the catch they had taken Fear and shock, it had overwhelmed them. But as the panic subsides, they're trying now to make sense of it all. They've gotten things to shore. Um, Do you know what I think troubled Peter most? It wasn't the frustration of going all night as a commercial fisherman, uh, not bringing in even one fish with nets. That wasn't what troubled him. Uh, It wasn't the shock of the enormous catch, though there was a panic situation for a short season. It it wasn't even that they came probably with just within inches of losing their boats, their entire livelihood. I, I don't think that's what troubled Peter. What troubled Peter most was that of all the times that they had shared thus far with Jesus... Over the previous year to year and a half, since the baptism of John, Peter had never heard Jesus curse once. During every event where they accompanied Jesus, Simon Peter had never heard him make a sexually degrading comment towards a woman. The disciples had never heard Jesus uh, try to justify a few dollars that were misused or lost in the ministry. Even as as we know that Jesus stayed on different occasions in in Simon's house, as we saw in the previous chapter, uh, Simon Peter had never heard him speak a lie. Never No matter what conditions or set of circumstances Peter and his friends thus far had observed Jesus in, Peter had never witnessed Christ sinning. That should trouble any heart. Because when you set your eyes on the holiness of God, and when you come into contact with the righteousness of Christ, it exposes your soul. It exposes who you are. And when you look upon Christ's righteousness, you know, there's there's only one reasonable reaction, right? On the perfect sinlessness of God's Son. Only one reasonable response. In my case, I'd say I'm so not like Him. I am so not like Him. And Peter could, Simon Peter could finally say to himself, Mine eyes have seen the Lord. And as he pondered the miraculous provision in the boat, 
So great a catch. So, so great that their boat almost sank. In verse 8, Peter sa- it says that Peter fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. I'm not like you. I've seen you. This is square one for Christians. Square one. You can't really claim to follow Christ, to be a Christian, to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit until you first recognize and admit, I'm I'm a sinful creature. I am a sinful creature. Uh, We realize that we continue to practice things that we should not. We understand that we fail to do things that we should in my old, growing up, the old Lutheran hymn book that I still have uh, on my bookcase, there's a confession that we used to recite. And of course, anyone who's familiar with those types of traditions, it was every week. And, and portion of it goes like this. I confess it that I am in bondage to sin and cannot free myself. I have sinned against you, Lord, in thought, word, and deed, by what I have done and by what I have left done, undone. I have not loved you with, our whole, with my whole heart. I have not loved you, my neighbors as myself. And, and when you can, can say that type of confession or, or prayer with conviction from your heart, and, and you fear the righteousness, the holiness of God, John 16 verse 8 suggests the Holy Spirit has begun his sovereign work in your life. His work of convicting you of your sins. That is an indication that He's preparing you to follow Him. You see, by, by comparison, the, the non-Christian doesn't suffer the same condition of conviction. Uh, he or she doesn't primarily uh, fear the judgment of God in the coming resurrection. They primarily fear getting caught by police, right? Or, or exposed perhaps for something they've done that's not real nice uh, and, and it's exposed then to their spouse. They, they fear being exposed. They, they fear the shame of people. They, they fear the immediate consequences of their actions, possibly with the police or with prison time. Health complications they fear. By comparison, Peter senses how his, his sin He's embarrassed, folks. He, he senses how his sin has offended a holy and righteous God. Lord, go away from me. I am a sinner. Peter's sense of conviction, it is not common in our day. There is little shame in our society. Uh, people have little reservation towards stealing from others. Little reservation towards stealing from their employer. They convince themselves they deserve it. Uh, about lying about a neighbor, no problem, you can justify it. Uh, rebelling against civil authority, that, that's in vogue. Marital infidelity, uh, considered typical. Public nudity, promiscuity, that, that's celebrated. Cheating on a college exam, that's expected. That, that's the culture, folks. That's the world. There's no conviction of those types of sins in our society today. People are just afraid of getting caught. 
Most people don't see their sin as a problem or a hindrance to relationship with our Father in heaven. They excuse it. Simon Peter has seen the holiness of Christ. He's convicted. He isn't going to make any more excuses. He said, go away from me, Lord. I'm, I, I'm the problem. I'm the problem here. Is there hope for him? Oh, you bet there's hope for him. Is there, is there hope for us who are in that same lost condition? Oh, there is. There's lots of hope for us. Because Scripture says through the offering of the blood sacrifice of Christ, then followed by the bodily resurrection of Christ from the dead. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. Peter doesn't know it yet, but in about 18 to 24 months from this day, the Holy Christ is going to be crucified at the hands of sinful men. He's going to die bearing the sins of the world. At their calling, at this time, Peter, James, uh, John, and the others, they don't realize they're going to be witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to the world. They, they don't know that yet. They, they aren't even prepared to receive that information. They, they, they just haven't had enough training. It's the beginning. They're learning. But, but as they follow and, and walk alongside Jesus, He will eventually reveal to them everything in the proper time, as they can handle it, as they're prepared, he'll reveal everything they need to know about their future. This is why uh, this passage here, it, it is an act of faith, as they respond and follow Jesus with their lives full time. Remember last week we talked about where this is the point, where Jesus asked them to make a change. They had been friends of him, Now he's asking them to be full-time followers of him. Full-time. At this point, they don't understand God's sovereignty. They don't need to. At this moment, they don't need to do anything else except one thing. Trust Jesus. Trust him. That's the beginning. Everyone has to start there. Everyone has to start somewhere. And that's the best place to start. And we see in this text that their decision, obviously it's enhanced by a demonstration of God's power. A visible demonstration of power. The miracle with these nets, the fish, it was impractical. Under natural laws, under natural conditions, it really shouldn't have happened. It was unpredictable. They sure didn't see it coming. Peter was just out there with one boat. He had to call in reinforcements. He didn't see it coming. And they're beginning to discover discover that this life of being with Christ is one of trusting Him. It's one that is impractical at times. Other times it's completely unpredictable. You don't see it coming. Jesus is impractical and He's unpredictable. Praise the Lord. 
So our passage tells us in verse 10 that this group includes James, it includes John. Of course, Simon, who would later be called Peter, is here. And and the Gospel of Mark also includes Andrew, Simon's brother. He was there as well. And Jesus says to Simon Peter, probably with an earshot of the other, we don't know for certain, but he says to Simon Peter, Do not fear... From now on, you're going to be catching men. When they had brought their boats to land, it says they left everything and followed him. Left everything and followed him. In a parallel record in the Gospel of Mark, this would be chapter 1, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men, right? And Mark records, immediately they left their nets and followed him. Immediately. No pause. They dropped their nets. I anticipate the the hired servants, probably uh, the father Zebedee and the others that were in the boats, you know, they're like, we just saw that. We just saw that. We don't know what's going on here. You men go on ahead. You go with him. We'll, We'll take care of the fish. He's called you to follow him. You go. We'll take care of the fish. It's interesting how Jesus just reassures them. Reassures them. Do not fear. Don't fear following me. I don't think he's at all responding at all to the the chaos in the boats. I think Jesus is, is now telling them, don't be afraid of surrendering your life. Don't fear that. There's nothing to fear. Follow me. He'd already proven to them how he can fill their nets. Fill them to the top. Jesus will provide outside normal means if he has to. It'll be impractical. I can provide in whatever way I want. He indicates, I'm in control. You just saw that. You have nothing to fear. There's no fear in following Jesus. For us folks, fear is paralyzing. It paralyzes us. And to an extent, it's experienced by every Christian that trusts in Jesus. Fear of what your spouse might say if you become a Christian and they're not. What are they going to think? Fear of judgment of friends who might resist your new way of life as you follow Christ. Here's a big one. Fear of how you're going to continue to provide for your families. Do you think the disciples had that concern at this point? If they're going to drop their nets and follow Jesus? We know many people, as they're in the workforce, as they're employees, as they're business owners, as they are partners in businesses, as they have clients that they engage business with, Government employees, contractors who are are getting contracts with the government, money as it is exchanged, hand-to-hand. We know there's just a whole lot of crooked dealings going on. A whole lot. Every workplace, every contract, people looking for an advantage looking to take advantage. Their hands are in the proverbial cookie jar. You should be able to see, along with me today, 
that with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you shouldn't have any fear of how you used to provide for yourself. How you used to supplement your income. All of that can be put behind you safely with no fear. You don't have to worry about providing in that sense. Jesus says you have nothing to fear. Did, did, did you happen to see how Jesus provided for these fishermen? Miraculous. You don't think that he'll provide for our needs as well? You don't think he can provide? Oh, he can. And he will. Material yearnings, they're a huge distraction for each of us. A huge distraction. Uh, this, disciples suffer the very same problem. They're going to have to be reminded again and again of God's provision for them, God's ability to provide for them time and time again. Over the next couple of years, this is going to be a topic that's going to be repeated as they follow Christ. They have a really short memory, just like us. Really short memory in how God provides. Uh, we need to recognize the God that we are serving. Our God is Jehovah Jireh. Yahweh Jireh. The Lord who provides. God provides. That is our God. He provides. It doesn't suggest that He'll bail us out of every horrible situation that we put ourselves in. If we choose to buy too expensive of a car on too much credit, it may be that he'll send a representative from the bank in a great big flatbed truck to help you out of your situation. And you can thank him for it if that's the situation. You know, God, God isn't a genie in a bottle where he promises to get us out of every situation, every bad situation we get ourselves into. He promises he will provide. He promises us He will provide. He is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And He promises to, to everyone who follows Him, He will never leave us nor forsake us. Never. That's a quote from Hebrews 13, verse 5. And yes, that quote concerns money, if you're wondering in context. And yes, it teaches you and it teaches me to live a life honestly, while shooting straight, at the same time not to be afraid, to be content, the broader quote says this, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he, referring to God, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Folks, that's a, that's a promise. That is a promise. It's a promise to those who follow Jesus who, who all too often gravitate back to their old style of life. Who here hasn't suffered from that in one category of life or another? I don't see any hands going up. That's good. We go back to our old habits. We need to be continually reminded that God is Jehovah Jireh, that he does provide. In fact, it isn't that long hereafter, uh, as Jesus talked to them this day, it isn't much later 
that, that these same men, same men who dropped their nets to follow him, put everything behind them, their businesses, their livelihoods, these same men, isn't much later and they're on the Sea of Galilee again. It's in Mark chapter 8. Jot this one down uh, in a note or on a corner of your Bible uh, where you can, uh, can find it in an instant if you need to. Mark chapter 8. Uh, I myself, having lived for a period of time as, as a missionary on the generosity of others who give, things that are impractical and unpredictable a lot of the time uh, for Christian missionaries, but having lived on that, on, on that type of income, uh, this remains one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. For those who are going to commit our lives to following Him, we've got to get this one right. Who is God? Does He provide? He does. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus, He had just fed 4,000 plus. Probably plus a lot. But 4,000 men plus. With seven loaves and a few fish, we are told. He's just, just done this. Then He gets caught up in a dispute with Pharisees in front of the disciples. The Pharisees, they demand a sign. Just fed 4,000 people with seven loaves, a few fish. Words surely would have gotten to the Pharisees. And they demand a sign from heaven. And Jesus and his disciples, they get back into the boat after this dispute and travel again across the sea. And in verse 14 of Mark chapter 8, we are told, they, meaning the disciples, had forgotten to take bread and did not have much more than one loaf in the boat with them. That's all. And Jesus was giving them orders, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of the leaven of Herod. So, so he's warning them about the influence, the, the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Remember, Pharisees were always demanding a sign. What did Herod want to see later on, we know? He wanted Jesus to dance, didn't he? He wanted a sign. Wanted to see miraculous things. And he was warning them, those Pharisees who had just demanded a sign from heaven to prove who I was, Jesus said, beware of that leaven. Beware. And after mentioning, this, this is just the natural thing that would happen with a bunch of guys. I'll, I'll attest to this. After mentioning the topic of leaven, the disciples start thinking about what? Bread. Could use some bread. I'm hungry. And in verse 16, the disciples began to discuss with one another the fact they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? They should have gotten this right after the fish the first time, right? The nets that were full. And who provided them? But he said, do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart, Jesus said? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. It's like, good, good. When I broke the seven for the 4,000s, how many large baskets... Full of broken pieces did you pick up? And he said to them, Seven. And Jesus was saying to them, 
do you not yet understand? We all getting this? Who provides? He provides however he wants, when he wants. He is God. Do you not yet understand? He asked them. See, like us, their hearts, they remained hard. Their minds remained dull. Dull of understanding. Just like we are so often. Uh, Even though from the very beginning in Luke, from the first time that they followed him, they knew his promises. He prepared for them what they should expect in ministry on that first day. And and so through his word, God reminds us that he can provide any time, anywhere, as he so desires in so many impractical and unpredictable ways. These were men just like us. They were very practical men, hard-working men, tough guys. They needed to retrain their minds. They need to rethink this again. They needed to be reminded to trust Jesus daily. Trust him for the provision. And in a sense, I'm thankful that they kind of failed at this repeatedly. Because I've failed at this repeatedly. And I can see we're not a whole lot different than they are. It just doesn't usually sink in the first few times. But the experience of Christ filling their nets was their first such lesson. And they were being called, folks, into a very intense ministry. That is what would be revealed to them. It was going to be very intense. Uh, One which they would eventually sacrifice their lives. They would eventually give their lives in service to Christ. But we too are called to a very intense ministry, folks. A very intense ministry. Hopefully one where no one will have to sacrifice their life. Or wait. Ours actually is a ministry where we're supposed to be sacrificing our life. It is. It is. Our lives in service to Him, following Him, includes our time. It includes our finances. It includes commitment. It includes involvement. It involves mutual encouragement. It demands our lives. Following Christ demands our lives. And we don't naturally gravitate towards giving up any of these. We'd rather not naturally, had it not be for for God showing us through Christ and the indwelling Holy Spirit through His Word that we're to give. Praise the Lord that we hear from His Word. We especially don't like to give On finances, usually. We have to eat, right? I know I have to eat. We're going to eat later on. Hot dogs. We do have to eat. We do have to take care of our lives. We do have to save for a rainy day. We do need to prepare for the future ahead. We've all heard in Proverbs 6, verse 6, it says, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways. It stores its provisions in summer and its food at harvest. And when it comes to a nest egg, you know, we're trained from our youth early on. Who here hasn't been? Doesn't mean we listened. But we're trained early on from our youth about setting aside money for later in life, right? 
Each one of us is trained in that. Our parents tell us, the school teaches us, the internet does. They're constantly talking about uh, investing in retirement. Go to any advisor online that says just incrementally put money away. Set, time, set things away. That's a scriptural principle. That's a good principle. Save money for later. And scripture, folks, provides the same prescription for giving. For giving. You do it incrementally as the Lord prospers you. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2. And Proverbs 13 suggests that wealth that is gathered little by little will increase. It will. Little by little it will increase. And you've learned either by experience or example from someone else that a little bit over time really builds a big 401k. And a little bit over time can build a pretty big investment in the kingdom of God. You shouldn't be ashamed of saving some. You don't need to be ashamed of preparing for the future and saving some. But you also should not be afraid of giving some. There's no fear in that as you follow him. Because who can make the bread and the fish come out of nowhere? Is there anything to fear? There's nothing to fear. How you're going to be taken care of? Nothing to fear. And he does it in the most impractical and unpredictable ways. So this is what Jesus is teaching these men who are going to follow him. You're going to have to realize, don't worry so much about tomorrow. Prepare. Be diligent. Prepare. But you don't have to worry. Come and follow me. Don't be afraid. And he has also demonstrated to them, he'll provide along the way. Many different contexts. He has shown that throughout uh, the Gospels. And often it will be impractical. Often it will be unpredictable in how it comes. And if you were here last week, you probably remember my story of the gas well. Of how God provided for us going through school through an impractical and unpredictable way that we could have never seen coming. And uh, he does that. That should have never happened. It was impractical. That, that, that mix-up where the person's realtor didn't hold back the mineral rights should have never happened. It was unpredictable. We never saw it coming. Well, another true story here I'd like to share with you, just, just to encourage how this works in, in so many lives. I've probably got a dozen of these over the last ten years. I'm sure you do too. And I'd love to hear about them. But sometimes we've got to look and, and, and show how thankful we are for what God does. This is a good one. This is a good one. By the grace of God, I graduated seminary debt-free. Um, through staying with my folks in the farm up in North Dakota, those of you who have heard the uh, story for a four-month period while Rita remained in Texas working uh, to keep us afloat, uh, she was at our home in Texas. I had completed... One session at the capital, in the state capital of North Dakota where I was ministering, teaching state lawmakers through the book of James. I was sent out as a missionary out of Denton Bible Church. I had a fundraising support goal of 60000 That would be for living expenses, travel, and other ministry expenses. Printing, all, whatever else I wouldn't be involved with. And 
Most of you probably realize how many $25 and $50 a month donations you need to hit $60,000. Ruth's been in missions. She knows enough people in missions. That takes a whole lot of people. A whole lot of people. And uh, I did in a short time gather a small handful of donors through my church. added up to a few hundred a month. Uh, but we would need to sell our home in Texas. Rita would need to quit her job and we would relocate up to North Dakota where we could continue on with the ministry. And uh, Rita was our only consistent source of income. And by, for those who are wondering, by this time the gas well had dried up. Yes, it was gone. But God didn't dry up. There was a uh, legisl- uh, public service commissioner in the Capitol that I knew. He came to the study every week. The following winter I was going to... Uh, make a trip up to the Capitol in Bismarck. I stopped at the Public Service Commission, uh, talked to Kevin Kramer, who was Public Service Commissioner. He came every week to the study. Wonderful man of God, born-again Christian. And he actually now serves as North Dakota's uh, congressman in D.C. Wonderful man. He didn't know my fundraising goal. He didn't know my situation. He didn't know any of that. I had a policy of never soliciting a legislator and would take no money from anyone at the Capitol. The Corinthian rule. I'm not going to minister to you and have you suspicious that that I'm here to make money off you. So I wouldn't do that. But Kevin asked, he goes, so when are you relocating? You were here for the session and now it's winter again and and we're hoping you can get back up here to continue the ministry. I told him, I'm not certain. I, I just started fundraising. I have to sell my house. Rita has to quit her job. Uh, we aren't very far along. He said, you know what? And this was that day. I had just traveled back up to North Dakota from Texas. It was a winter day. And I walk into his office and he goes, you know what? And we'd sit and pray sometimes together. But that day I walked in he goes, a couple stopped in today. First time I met them. And they left me two business cards. And he goes, I don't know why. They said they were Christians. They're even from North Texas. They're kind of from your neck of the woods. He, he handed me one of the cards and he said, you know what, why don't you try calling them? He didn't have any idea what I needed or what the, anything like that. So I went back uh, to the farm and I, I called up this couple and a nice lady answered. And, and she said, oh, she goes, I'd like to hear about ministry in the capital. We stopped have just relocated part of our business up to North Dakota. And, and uh, you know, we'd like to hear what's going on. And she goes, how about in a week? You meet us out in Williston, way out in the middle of nowhere. Way out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, about seven hours from my parents' farm, completely opposite end of North Dakota. And um, I said, uh, I'd be glad to. <laughs> you name the time, I'll be there. And uh, so a week later I show up and I'm driving out and it's a snowstorm. And I get this address and I find out that it was at a farmstead out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, there wasn't another building within three miles of this farmstead. And uh, roads are getting full of snow. And uh, I better keep moving on this. But I, I tell you what. I call her. She goes, I'm going to be there right behind you. I'm, I'm stuck right now. A guy's going to pull me out of the ditch. You go into the house. And, and help yourself to anything that you want out of the fridge. I went in, sat down for about 20 minutes, and she walks in. First time I meet her. Wonderful lady. She sits down. What do you do? I said, well, I have this ministry of teaching in the capital. I sh- share the word of God, disciple-making, other things. And I believe God has changed my life. 
I believe it can do the same thing for our legislators, our lawmakers. That was the motive behind the ministry. And uh, she said, well, that's wonderful. And, and she goes, well, my husband's going to be home anytime. He got there about an hour later, walked in, sat down, pulled his coveralls off. They were both dressed very modestly and getting their coveralls off, stripping down. He sat in the chair. She got him a cup of coffee and a sandwich, and I'm sitting there talking. And uh, he goes, well, t- tell me what you do. He didn't even know what I did. I go, well, I'm said I'm sharing... Christ in the capital, talking to people about Jesus, doing anything that I can, being there for him, praying with him, meeting them. He goes, you've already been doing this. I go, yeah, I said, uh, went through one session. And uh, he goes, where are you from? I go, well, I was raised here in North Dakota on a small family farm. That's the reason I came back to the state capital. Right now we live in North Texas. Oh, what part of North Texas? I go, Denton, Denton, Texas. He goes, oh, I'm, I'm from the south end of Fort Worth. I know your area, about 60 miles away. He goes, yeah, I'm pretty familiar with that area. He goes, uh, Denton, huh? And you're, you're a missionary. Yeah, I'm a missionary. I've been ordained by my local church and, and uh, other things. And, and uh, he said, what church? I said, I'm out of Denton Bible Church. His jaw dropped. He said, you're here? I mean, we're out in the middle of western North Dakota, middle of nowhere. He said, you're sent out to share Christ from Denton Bible Church? I go, yeah. He goes, Tom Nelson, your pastor? I go, yep. I know Tom. They ordained me. Your pastor led our son to Christ. What do you need? Told him. Said, "Uh, well, this is, we're wanting to sell our house. Other things. I go, uh, just trying to get some traction. He goes, how much do you need? I said, well, I, said, I need $60,000. He goes, I'll give you half. A guy I'd never met with his wife, no connection, completely impractical, in the middle of nowhere, out in a snowstorm, at a farmstead. His son, who had been through all kinds of trouble in his life, was led to Christ by my pastor. Folks, you can't make that up. You can't orchestrate that stuff. You, you, can't, you can't make those things happen. You can't make that happen out of nowhere. Completely impractical, completely impredict, unpredictable. God is Jehovah Jireh. He is the God who provides. doesn't mean we throw all caution to the wind. It doesn't mean we don't have to do our work. We do have to make those phone calls. We do have to share the gospel. We do need to pull those nets in. Peter wasn't going to get the fish without pulling the nets in. Sometimes people get so uh, uh, miraculous in their stuff. It's like, well, you don't don't really have to do much. Peter could have just rowed across the lake and God could have made him hop in the boat if he wanted to. God doesn't work that way. We have to do the work of ministry. We have to do the work of the church and allow God to provide because he is a God who provides. He's in control all the time. Which brings me to a scripture reading to close. It seems a bit risky here to Peter, probably, to leave their boats and nets behind. It might seem risky to sell your home and move to another state. It might seem a little bit scary to give a portion of your wealth to the work of the Lord 
But is there any risk involved? There really isn't. Jesus said to Peter, I will show you what I can do. I'm going to keep showing you. Come and follow me. Peter says, what's in it for us? Matthew 19, 27, Peter asked Jesus, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And what's in it for us? And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Folks, as we close, there there are many people that would suggest, we're real conservative here in theology. We are. There's no denying that. But it can be suggested that, that those who embrace conservative theology don't believe in miracles. Some would suggest, well, we don't believe in miracles here. Nothing could be further from the truth. That suggestion could not be any further from the truth. We acknowledge that miracles are in front of our eyes every single day. We don't demand that God prove himself every day. Through signs, Scripture tells Christians we walk by faith, not by sight. Blessed is he who believes, yet has not seen. Why would I want to see if it's blessed to not have seen? The Pharisees demanded to see signs. Christians don't need to be, see signs. We see God's handiwork. We see a dual organ transplant. Orchestrated by God. We, we see doors of the gospel opened by the hand of God. We witness miraculous provision that can't be explained apart from God. Could Peter and the other fishermen have attributed their, their full nets to a lucky strike of a school of fish? Oh, an atheist fisherman could do that. Oh, got lucky. People who know God can't. We know better. Could Rita and I have explained God's provision for us in ministry in all these different ways uh, over time uh, to just time, space, chance, coincidence? Not if you're committed to God. Scripture describes such behavior as suffering the judgment of God to deny what's right before our eyes. As it says, seeing you still do not perceive, hearing you still don't understand. God's provision is miraculous. And just like the disciples, it's before our eyes. What other conclusion can you make than when Jesus says, don't be afraid. Come and follow me.